Good morning, everyone. As you can see, slight adjustment. I have been chained this morning as I wander too much. So I've been a electronic ball and chain put on me. So For the people on the recording, they can't get away from me now. So lesson 29, actually, in our books, it's... Uh, Kind of crazy. I was counting it up. There's going to be a Sunday. We're actually going to double up lessons just to to fit with our timeline and everything. But I think it's including today six more lessons. I'll get with John on that. Six more weeks, including today. So it's kind of crazy that it's going going very quickly. Um, then turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, which is a uh, will be our passage. This morning. John 14 should be a familiar passage to you. Familiar passage to you, but uh, really good ones. Maybe get to look at it, maybe some, maybe some different angles on some things on that this morning. John 14, so let's go around the room. We'll actually read those. Got a lot of readers, no pun intended today. So, Go around like we normally do and read those. Um, so me, Pastor uh, Brinkers, Andy, AJ, and then back up this way like that. It's John 14. It says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the lady you know. Thomas says unto him, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If ye have known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him, and have seen him. Philip said unto him, Lord, show us the Father. And it suffice us. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17. Wait, John 13. 14. 14, 17. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come unto you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments, and keepeth them, he it is that love me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him, and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not scared. Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us, and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him, and make our abode with him. He that loveth me, he that loveth me not, keepeth not my sayings, and the word which he hears not mine, but the Father's which sent me. These things have I spoken unto you, being at present with you. 
But the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world give I unto you. Let your, not, let your heart not be, let your heart, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away, and come again unto you. If you have me, you would rejoice, because I said, I go unto the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you, before it come, uh, and now I have told you, before it come to pass, that when, uh, when it is come to pass, you might believe. Hereafter I will not talk much with you, for the prince of this world cometh, and have nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me his commandments, even so I do, arise, let us go hence. forgot to pray beforehand. John, would you mind opening us up and pray? Jesus, thank you for this day, and just, uh, just this beautiful day that you've given us, and just also uh, for uh, families uh, being able to come and uh, being healthy, and just uh, getting over uh, sicknesses and uh, those kind of things. And, uh, you know, just uh, I want to pray for this specifically for the Sunday school hour that you just give us uh, listening ears and open hearts, uh, just to really be expecting and looking for what you have for us because we know you do have uh, something very special for us uh, today. And just also be with. Uh, services coming up and just the kids back in Sunday school. Just love you, Lord. We need you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So, again, kind of a familiar passage that um, that we read and everything there, but what did we look at or what was the lesson we talked about last week? It would have been the Last Supper, or Christ's Last Supper that we looked at. So, keep in mind, this is all right here. So, having completed you know, the Passover ceremonies you know, on this Wednesday evening, Nisan 14, Jesus would spend the next 30 minutes or so, roughly, you know, preparing his disciples for the next events that are getting ready to happen. Um, now, little did they realize how they were going to be tested during the next 24 hours. Um, one of them had already left and was bargaining you know, with the chief priest to sell him. Another of them would deny him three times before the sun came up. And the rest of them, all of them but John, would be so disillusioned and frightened that they'd just disappear into the night. And the Lord had to prepare them for those, those shocking events that's, that they're going to face. Because it's really interesting, keeping in the context what just happened in the chapter before. Look at the end of chapter 13. Well, uh, well look at the beginning of chapter 14. Chapter 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. What did he just said in the two or three verses before that? So we, um, sometimes we like to isolate John 14 in our minds, but think about what he just said seconds before what he's saying here. Let not your heart be troubled. That Jesus had just confounded Peter by telling him he's going to deny him three times before sunrise. Now he's going to comfort them and the rest of them. So John 14 is a chapter of consolation and promise. So we already read through it. There's a couple promises. We're actually going to look at four main promises that Jesus gives in this chapter. See if you can find some of them. Just like briefly scan through it or think some off the top of your head. What are some promises that Christ gives in this passage? Can you come again? Okay. He's going to prepare a place for you. What was that name? He'll send a comforter. Yep. Anything else? Again, we're going to look at kind of four of them. Kind of every single one of those kind of ties into it. There's one. Yep. So again, kind of those are all right answers that kind of tie right into the kind of the four main ways we're looking at. But again, keep in mind kind of just the context of the week where we're at. Again, using the timeline of like a Thursday um, crucifixion. Again, this would be Wednesday evening, um, the Last Supper again. So they're in Jerusalem still. 
Jesus' trial and arrest is going to happen hours after this. But the first promise we're going to look at is a future dwelling place. You know, Christ's first promise was this. And it's interesting, again, there's some folks, um, cults, you know, believe that Christians don't go to heaven. You know, they would base this on the fact that you never see heaven in reference to life after death in, in Scripture and stuff like that. So according to them, you know, John 14 is simply a picture of a custom that was common in Christ's day of the citizens of a town you know, rushing out to meet an approaching king so that they could accompany him into their city. So this, they say, is what Christ meant by the phrase, I will receive you unto myself. That is, no, when Christ returns to live on this earth, we'll be caught up in the clouds, are rushing out to meet him, and then we'll accompany him the rest of the way back to earth. So according, there's no rapture according to that. There's only a second coming to earth. Again, not to be confusing or anything, but it's just really interesting what some people believe on some stuff. So we're not going to take the time to like go through um, a doctrinal basis for heaven and um, life after death and that kind of thing. So let's just focus on the facts that we know about heaven and stuff. That was just mentioned that, again, the things that some people believe, basically. Where heaven is. It's interesting. We know three things about this. It says, somewhere, and heaven is the most logical place, because Christ is preparing a place for us, as he says there. For him to prepare that dwelling place for us, oops, for him to prepare that dwelling place for us, if no one was going to dwell there, it would be kind of ridiculous. And wherever he is, we will be. Because you see in verse 3, that where I am, there ye may be also. And to be with Christ is there. So how to get to? Notice verse 4. And whither I go, ye know, says, and the way ye know. Do you know the way to heaven? I hope so. Look at what the question was asked right after that. How can we know the way? Verse 5. So what was Jesus' answer? Again, there's kind of a couple different things that he gives here. You probably can summarize it in verse 6, right? Kind of the common verse know that we know and everything here. First off, Christ is the way. Verse 6, no, Jesus saith unto him, again, this is answer to verse 5, and Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Christ is the way. No way without Christ. Acts 4.12, neither is there any other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. Talking about Christ. So where does that leave people who don't believe that? What about the Jews who reject Christ? What about other religions that are sincere? Does that very much go into what John, Jesus talked about in John 10? I am the door. By me, if any man enter in. All that came before are thieves and robbers. Don't come in through the door, you're a thief and a robber how he gave. Christ is the truth. Do people know real truth if they reject Christ's claims as God? Savior, Lord of the universe, Messiah, etc. Do they really know real truth? Apart from that. Christ is the truth. It's interesting. This is an interesting statement here. It says, no, obviously then, all education that's based on atheistic or evolutionary theory is not true education. It's kind of an interesting statement. It's interesting. The only education that acknowledges that Christ is the truth can offer instruction in the truth, which is kind of interesting. Interesting way to think about it. And then thirdly, Christ is the life. No one truly lives who's never trusted Christ. They might exist, but they don't really live. You think about Ephesians 2.1, and you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead 
in trespasses and sins. Think of John 10, 10, Jesus, again, that good shepherd message you know, that Jesus is talking about there. He says, um, he's talking about all that ever came before me uh, and there were thieves and robbers and I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what real living is about. Think about that. And Jesus is saying, he's the key to real living, to real living. You know, people talk about, that's real life. Jesus is real life. He's the key to real living. Let's talk about our assurance here. Look at verses 7 to 11. It says, If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Philip saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and yet have so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? And he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. So it's interesting. So why were the disciples like so fearful? We kind of see things here. With what was Christ really trying to help them in this passage? But it's but it's a true understanding of who he was would be a comfort to them. Their failure was to understand who he really, really was. Because note especially Thomas's and Philip's questions there in you know, verses four to eight. You know, if Jesus' promise was to comfort them in the coming crises, crises that were getting ready to happen, they had to recognize Christ as being one with the Father, as being God. Because you note his claim in verse nine. You know, he that has seen me has seen the Father. So that argument presupposes the conclusion that if he is one with the Father, then his promise of a future heaven is as sure as if the Father himself had said it. So since you continually believe him, Christ is telling him, then continue believing the verse 3, which is what says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you're, there you may be also when I'm dead and buried and in the grave. Now that is, in essence, our assurance of salvation too, is Christ. So if Jesus is not God, if he's not the Lord Jehovah as he claimed, then he's a liar. You can't, it is amazing how some people can say Christ never claimed to be God. You gotta like cut out half the Bible <laughs> to say that. Cut out all the Gospels, you might as well, to come to, to say that. And if he lied about who he is, then how can we be sure he told us the truth? He can't be the truth then, right? For one. Furthermore, if he isn't God, then he surely couldn't have risen from the dead. And if he is dead, he isn't preparing a place for us. So that's why the doctrine of the deity of Christ is vital. That should be an uncompromisable doctrine. It's not just a minor detail that you can agree to disagree about. It's a fundamental uncompromisable, um, may not be a word, of our faith. If you reject the deity of Christ, you can't be a true believer. That's the first promise, a future dwelling place. Number two, power through prayer. This is an interesting one here. Verse, um, this is kind of verses 12 to 14. It says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Right? So we need to be. So if we're not raising people from the dead and healing sick people and handling snakes and doing all kinds of stuff, we're not really that today, right? It's interesting what he says. He says, These works, he says, in greater works than ye shall do. But he raised the dead and gave sight to the blind. So how in the world, like, what is that talking about? 
Keep a finger here and then turn to Romans chapter 1 and then Colossians chapter 1. Go to Colossians first. Colossians chapter 1. And then look at, let me get it here. Colossians 1, verse 25. Again, this is in Paul's kind of very lengthy introduction to the, uh, the Church of Colossae here. This is where, I you know, he's like 10 verses or something without a period kind of thing. Uh, verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. That's interesting. Even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, or made clear, evident. To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Whom we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. And then Romans 1, um, verse 16. Get us back here. You might be familiar with this one. Romans 1, 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. You know, so what is he, some things he might be talking about here in John 14? What are greater works than these that we can do, can be in? Through the power of the gospel, the greatest miracle of all takes place, the salvation of the human soul. You think about it. When we present the gospel, you know, and souls are saved, we participate in the greatest work or miracle of all, the new birth. It's interesting. You think about the dramatic change that can happen. Someone who's an atheist, a drug addict, a drunk, anything you can fill in the blank with any um, noun there. And then they get saved and the transformation that happens. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. And when we participate in that by being God's messenger to them, we participate and the greatest miracle of all. Greater works than these. You see the power of the gospel, but you also see the power of prayer. It's interesting. As believers, we not only have the power of the gospel at our disposal, but also the power of prayer. He says, no, whatever we ask in Christ's name, we have it, right? So does that mean if we pray for God to move Mount Everest next door, that he's going to do it? You say, in Christ's name, if it, which on a separate note, you ever wondered why we say what we do when we pray? You know, sometimes we just say stuff because that's what we've always heard. There's a reason to often where it come from. You say, in Jesus' name, amen. There's a reason why that kind of, we do that. On a separate note, going down a rabbit trail here, why do we pray for our food? The Bible never says to pray for your food, does it? If you think about Jesus as our example, what did he do right before he broke the bread and the fish in John chapter 6? He gave thanks. Anyway, separate note. But, but the question, does that mean if we ask whatever we want? No, God's going to do it if we ask in Jesus' name. If we end our prayer with in Jesus' name. It's interesting. The... Um, there's other passages, similar things, like he says in Matthew to that. You know, if um, you have faith, this is a grain of mustard seed. You know, it'll do it. Again, letting Scripture interpret Scripture is important here. Read verses 12 to 14. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Isn't that, I just, I thought about this right, right here again, and then yesterday as I was looking through this. Another reason for his deity. If he's dead, how can he do anything if you pray to him? Because notice what he says. If you shall ask anything in my name, it doesn't say my Father will do it. I will do it. It's interesting. Think about here. Again, this is answering our question. If we just say anything in Jesus' name, he's going to do it, right? Think about necessity here. You know, some people have said that there's no purpose in praying, you know, because, you know, if God wants something to be done, he's going to do it, regardless of whether you pray for it or not, because, you know, he knows your needs before you even ask him, right? Right? And if God doesn't want something to happen, it's not going to happen, regardless of how much you pray. So why do we pray? What's the point? That sounds kind of logical in some ways, at surface level, doesn't it? Okay. What does James 4, 2 says? Somebody go, somebody go there and read James 4, 2. You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain, you fight in war, yet you have not because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. It's pretty clear that you, we miss blessings because we don't take requests to God. No, regardless of how all that works out, in God's mind, prayer makes a difference. Again, it's not the point of talking about prayer um, this morning and stuff. You know, Wednesday nights have been um, really good on that. So we also see the necessity, so we saw the necessity of prayer, but there's this point here about in Christ's name. So what does that mean, in Christ's name? think about, um, I don't want to say it, let's continue here, no, to pray in Christ's name, Christ's name means to pray for the very things that Christ would pray for in his name. You think about it, now say for example, giving us a school example here, for example, say that a principal is now asked to speak at a nearby school, but he can't go, so he sends a student in his place, or in his name to represent him. And he gives the student the prepared speech that you know, he's supposed to deliver, but the student just tears it up and gives his own um, message, you know, tells him something totally opposite of what was intended to be said. You know, such a message would not be delivered in the principal's name, right? Because that's, it would not portray the principal's position. Now think about this. Our prayer should represent accurately what's in Christ's name, what's in Christ's heart, in his mind, or they won't be answered. You think about, um, well, this kind of goes right with the next one. Glorifying the Father is in here too. Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And we saw James 4, 2. Are you still in James 4? Um, can you read 4, 3? <laughs> um, yes, please. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. So, no, we saw James 4, 2, and 3. Not only do we have not because we ask, but we ask and have not because we ask amiss or selfishly. God doesn't answer such prayers. No, that's the thing. No, he said in Jesus' name, I'll do it. So give me, a, I don't need a million dollars in my bank account tomorrow. In Jesus' name, amen. So to have our prayers answered, one, we need to ask. Two, it needs to be what Christ would ask. And then three, those things that will bring glory to the Father through it. When those conditions are met, God moves heaven and earth to answer. And it's interesting, an interesting statement. It says, our prayers set God's plans and his desires into motion. It's not that he couldn't act without our prayers. No, after all, he's omnipotent. It's that he desires for us to have a part in that, in his actions by our praying. Our prayers also glorify him 
by reminding us of our reliance on him for that. It's interesting. You think in other things of prayer. You think of like as a kid. Isn't it something, isn't it a joy to you for your kid to ask you for something, a need, and you be able to meet that for them? Isn't that just bring joy to you? I mean, you could do it without them even saying anything, right? But isn't that bring extra joy to you when you do that? Think about similarly with God. He can do it without even us asking, right? But when we ask, and then he's able to meet that, it brings him joy. Think about, you no know, back in Luke, again, it's different things in prayer, you no, know, God's saying, talking about, if ye being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more, basically, that God does. No, if any of you that is a father, if his son will ask him um, a piece of bread, will you give him a stone? If you ask him for a fish, you're going to give him a scorpion? If you ask him a fish, or um, something like that, or like a, a piece of bread, or are you going to give him a snake kind of thing? Again, yeah. it's interesting, just uh, thinking about Scripture on there. Most everybody here has children. What if your children never asked you for anything? Just a thought. Okay. It goes right along with um, the same thing. God's wanting us to participate in what he does and how he moves. And it's the whole thing. Other, other passages of scripture, if we ask anything according to his will, he doeth it. So again, you can't just isolate something and like cut it out and take it to the bank, so to speak. It's where keeping scripture in mind and interpreting scripture with scripture. Moving on. We've had two promises. The promise of a future dwelling place, power through prayer. And then we see the third one here. The Holy Spirit. We see he's called a specific title here. And what is that? Comforter. The um, one thing, I, I, the this, this study they've been doing really good, one thing that is a little annoying, that kind of does a little bit of informal textual criticism by no, this should be better translated, this. So he does say that here, so you'll see this on the slide, but keep that in mind. He's saying it should be better translated this on that. But you think about Christ and Jesus as a defender from his, with his disciples. Now, there was a number of times, you no know, Christ would have de- defended his disciples or, other, or others in our study. Can you think of any of those? No, there's one. Woman taken in adultery for the Pharisees. How about the blind man in John chapter 9? How about his disciples? We haven't got to it. A couple hours later after this in the Garden of Gethsemane. Let these go. He would defend his disciples lots of times when the Pharisees would be criticizing him on different things and stuff. And then, of course, Peter from Satan. Satan, Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. So although Christ was about to leave them, they wouldn't be orphans. Because he was going to send another comforter. Again, this is where they talk, it's just more of an attorney, a, a defense attorney, think about this. But you think of comforter. What's the idea of a comforter? Interceder. Um, an advocate, a consoler, goes right along with what the passage is talking about. Anyway, we don't need to just let the Bible say what it says and not have to feel like you need to correct it. It's interesting. It's the idea that you know, Christ is departing from them, but something is coming, another comforter. You think about it, cause what is Christ doing in this passage, comforting them? Another comforter that's coming. And he's turning that responsibility of that job over to the Holy Spirit, which is the comforter here. And the same Holy Spirit is the one who does comforts and advises us today on that. Defends us, our defender, from Satan, from the world. Think about in Thessalonians talking about end time and the Antichrist. No, but he who now letteth will let, will prevent until he be taken out of the way. Talking about the Holy Spirit there. 
But continuing on here, again, kind of already talked about that. And then Jesus as a teacher. Actually, the Holy Spirit here is a teacher, excuse me. So think about this. Now, how is John able to recall in detail 60 years after the events of the book of John occurred, all the words and actions of Christ and the other people mentioned and everything in his gospel? Look at verse... Um, where is it? Look in verse 26. The Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, and the Father will send in my name. He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Wherefore, whatsoever I have said unto you. Again, the answer lies in the work of the Holy Spirit. And he could recall all those because the Holy Spirit brought all things to his remembrance here. This says this fact is another reason we should memorize the word. When we need it, the Holy Spirit's able to bring it to our remembrance. But if you never put it in our memories in the first place, how can he bring it into your remembrance? It's interesting. This is the fourth promise now. We've seen a future dwelling place. We've seen power through prayer. We've seen the Holy Spirit. And now we see a really big five-letter word here. Peace. You see it in verse 27. Someone want to read that? Someone read verse 27. Okay, John. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So Jesus said that the peace that he offered was not like that which the world gives. So what kind of peace does the world give? What kind of peace does it offer? It doesn't really give. What kind of peace does it offer? But kind of more, what kind of does it actually offer? No, again, you see, that's from our perspective. But what does, like, from the world's perspective, what does it offer? Like a consolation. What was that? So you think about, the, there's kind of three kind of categories into which pretty much anything you can think of would kind of fall into, that the world's peace tends to fit into. How about the peace of temporary freedom? You know, the world advertises all its products that having the power to free men from boredom, from routine, from rules, from laws. But that freedom is fleeting, isn't it? It doesn't last. Because any single one of those things can change, and then you're back to where you were. And the, soon, the, given the example here, such freedom, however, is fleeting. It doesn't last. Soon the person awakes to find himself or herself even more enslaved than before. How about the piece, this is a big one, of escapism? You know, drown your sorrows, escape reality, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. YOLO, you only live once. People try to escape their problems by turning into alcohol, drugs, parties, workaholism, sexual promiscuity, reckless living. Um, it's interesting, even doing good for other people, philanthropy, um, different things. I mean, but it really doesn't change anything except make you feel good. How about the peace of false security? You know, bodybuilding, growing a nest egg, money and investments, amassing real estate holdings can give people a false sense of peace and security. But the human body declines with age or poor health, and it doesn't matter whether you're a bodybuilder, car accident can change it like that. Stock market can go down. 
somebody can go to war with somebody. Natural disasters wipe out property, you know. But when death, we think about this, every single one of those things that was just mentioned, when death draws near, all of those securities are empty, aren't they? They can't do anything. They prove to be emptiness. Think of Solomon, the preacher from Ecclesiastes. He said that he tried everything. There's nothing new under the sun. So he tried everything. We don't take time to read it, but um, I think it's the first 12 or so verses of chapter 2. You can read through those. And it says, he gets to the end of it and he says, Therefore I hated life. Think about that. He had everything. He says, I hated life. It was all transient, like vapor and wind. So we see the world's peace. What about Christ's peace here? So how is it different than that? Christ's peace differs from the world in kind of two ways. The first one, how about this? It's permanent. You know, in sorrow or death, Tragedy, heartache, joy, sorrow, Christ's peace is always there. It doesn't depend on things such as you know, drink or drugs or wealth. It doesn't depend on here to cover up reality. It helps us face reality and deal with it properly. It doesn't cover it up permanent, but it's also based on faith. No, whereas the world's peace depends on outward things, Christ's peace rests solely in our faith and our confidence in God's power and faithfulness to take care of us in everything. If you look at verse 29, and now I have told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. So the disciples were about to face a great trial here, and only their faith in what Christ's words here are going to let them make it through on this here. Do you have that kind of peace? Do you, do you run after the world's peace when you could have Christ's peace? Even good things, those seeming good things that we can do, it can be, it can be empty still. If it's without Christ in it. So, you know, and it's interesting. Look at the end of verse 31. But the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go hence. You know, after arming the disciples with his peace and promises, Christ told them it's time to get up and get moving. Now the idea behind that is let's march. Meet the enemy. Now, every day we meet the enemy, but we don't have reason to fear or face defeat because we have the promises that Christ has given us, and we can go as in confidence and conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us, not cowards. So, again, they're at the Last Supper. Christ has given them these words right after he's told them, you're all going to fail me. <laughs> but let not your heart be troubled. So they're now, they're leaving. Arise, let us go hence. We'll look at this. So now they're on their way to the garden. The next three chapters are basically what he told them on the way. Literally, they're his last words. They're going on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is going to face a battle himself. We, John doesn't really record it. But the other Gospels, especially Mark, really records the battle that Christ fought in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's interesting. Uh, a message, um, a series of messages from a preacher, actually Brother Hammett, um, that Christ fought and won his personal victory in Gethsemane that enabled him to go face publicly what he was about to do. He fought the battle in private and won the battle in private so it could perform publicly. Think about that. It's a lesson for us in that, that if we don't 
fight the battle in private, in prayer in ourselves, we're never going to win in public when it really comes down to it. But anyway, promises of Christ are precious for us. Let's heed them. So let's look at some questions here real quick before, uh, before we finish. So imagine that you were one of Jesus' disciples who had just heard Jesus predict that Peter would deny him. Now, how would you have felt knowing the next words he spoke were encouragement to be at peace and trust in him? Kind of an interesting question. Kind of one of those put yourself in their shoes kind of questions. So the second question, where do you suppose Thomas thought Jesus was going? You know, Jesus said, I'm where I'm going, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas says, um, I think it's in verse 4 or 5, um, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? So where do you think Thomas thought Jesus was going? I mean, maybe he thought he's going to set up his earthly kingdom. He's going to go somewhere. Who knows? I mean, doesn't really say. But he obviously didn't get the point of what Christ was saying. So describe the promised ministry of the Holy Spirit to the disciples like in your own words. Describe that promised ministry of the Holy Spirit to his disciples in, their, in your own words. So we looked at some of the things that he would do and think of his ministry with the disciples. So just that in your own words. He'd be their comforter. He'd be their comforter, sure. He would be the one to encourage them, console them. Think of Jesus on the sea, stormy sea, calm the storm. How, how would you have so little faith? Bring things to your remembrance. Um, comforter. Guider into truth. So what's the difference between Jesus' promise of peace and the world's offer of peace? Yeah. <laughs> About reliable and permanent. It's what the world's peace Temporary and fleeting, it's based on feelings, isn't it? Mainly, really, when you think about it. Feelings and then just ignoring reality. A false reality. David Chen, he finally called me on Saturday. He was on his way to Frankfurt. That's where his fiance is buried. It's a six month anniversary. Kind of interesting how God works things out and realize that. But he's going there to visit her. He has no peace. He has that peace. Trying to find some kind of temple comfort for people, but he, but he doesn't have peace. It's, it's sad what he's missing. So after all the different times that John has said, it's interesting. After all the different times that John has said the disciples believed in Jesus, 
he says in verse 29 that they would believe him when they saw his prophecies come true, when they saw his word come true. So what does you know, that kind of mean by the new use of the word believe? Kind of an interesting question. There's kind of a change in there. And it's kind of based, like, if you look at the wording on uh, 29, verse 29. Now I've told you before it come to pass that when it is come to pass, you might believe. You know, you know believe you know, seems to focus on how the disciples would be completely convinced when they saw all the events take place, and then they would remember Christ's prediction of these events before they took place and brought him back to their minds when they saw it fulfilled. So how is Jesus going to show the world that he loved the Father? By submitting to his will, which he knew would lead him to his death, lead him to Calvary. The, um, again, quite some promises that we can have. And Jesus isn't done speaking, because again, next lesson is kind of on John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And then, amazingly, even after that, he's going to intercede for them. Intercede for his disciples and for us to the Father. And it's really interesting. Well, it's really interesting to think about where he might have been physically when he said those words. But we'll get to them at a different point. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for... Just, I mean, just your promises that you give and how so many times we mess up and don't do what we should and do what we shouldn't and your Holy Spirit just prods and convicts and it, yeah, just, just works in our life. It's a comfort. He's a comforter of the same kind like you were when they were, when you were physically here on this earth and thank you for the promise of a future dwelling place of heaven we thank you for the power through prayer that we can have we thank you for the, again the holy spirit and then the peace that you give and again that is something that is so inexplainable to those who don't have it and help us to model that to others to this world around us and please help us to Take your promises. We can take them to the bank, so to speak. Help us to live like that. I pray for the service to come, that you'd be with Pastor as he opens, um, opens your word, that we would be able to be, um, just get something from your word, be able to stay focused on it. And um, again, that your spirit would just be guiding us into all truth this morning. All that. In Jesus' name, amen.